Matthew 13. Miracles, of course, play a huge role in the Gospels. In fact, we are now at the beginning of a new section in the Gospel of Matthew, the end of chapter 13, really leading into 14. And that section is going to run through chapter 18. And in that chapter, we're going to find seven different accounts of Jesus performing miracles. Some of them individual miracles, some of them whole clusters of miracles. Like we saw earlier in the book, seven different miracle accounts, so we see again. So obviously, they're, they're just huge in the, in the account from the uh, Gospels uh, about Jesus' life and ministry. Years ago, I preached a uh, series on the Gospel of John. That was the first Gospel I'd ever worked through, verse by verse. And I noticed that oftentimes, John called miracles signs. These are signs, he said. Signs that Jesus' words, his, his message is true. Signs that he really is from God. Signs that he is the Son of God with power. Many other signs, John records, Jesus did in the, his life. But these things I have written, these signs I've recorded so that you may what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So the miracles are written in the, in the Gospels to foster faith. Uh, the miracles are given to help establish the validity of the new revelation that would come from God through Jesus Christ and, of course, by extension through His apostles. Just as God gave a lot of miracles during the time of Moses. And Moses, of course, laid the foundation for us by giving us the law. God confirmed that testimony through the working of miracles. Then you have another big cluster of miracles in the Bible at about the, the, the time of the prophets, and particularly Elijah and Elisha, all kinds of miracles you read about happening. And God is once again confirming His testimony to His people in the form of the prophets. And you may know that the Jewish conception of the Old Testament was the law and the prophets. And so all through, God is confirming His Word through the giving of miracles. And now, here comes Jesus Christ, God's final Word, onto the scene. And in Christ and in His apostles, there's another big cluster, in fact, a greater cluster of miracles than you have any, anywhere before. And of course, that is because here's the one to whom all of those other ones pointed. Here's the one who is the culmination of God's revelation. And so miracles form a very um, central part of the story of the gospel. And Matthew also talks about miracles and the fact that they're bearing testimony. But Matthew, in addition to that, he highlights the withholding of miracles. Isn't that interesting? Matthew highlights not only Jesus giving or performing of miracles, but Matthew also talks in several places about Jesus' withholding of miracles. And this passage is one of them. We've already seen it. You remember back in chapter 12, let me refresh your memory. Some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see 
a sign from you. And he answered them, what? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. These people had every testimony from God that they needed. The, the problem wasn't that they needed more evidence. The problem was that they needed to humble their hearts before God. So Jesus refused to give them a sign. We'll see it again when we get to chapter 16. Again, people will come to Jesus looking for Him to do some kind of miraculous sign, and He'll say, you people know how to go out and look up at the sky, and just judging by the wind and the clouds to predict what the weather will be, to read the sky, to interpret the signs of the heavens, as it were. But you cannot look at my miracles and come to a right interpretation about me. You refuse to do it. And so, no more heavenly signs are going to be given to you. And in a similar vein then, Matthew explores the theme of miracles and unbelief in these two vignettes that he records for us here at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. So let's read the text together. All right, do it with me. Take a look at a copy of the Bible somewhere. We're going to start in verse number 53 of 13. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many work, mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, now chapter 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now, I'm grouping these two little stories together that, that Matthew tells because 
Well, for several reasons. On the one hand, they, they both deal with who Jesus is, right? In the first part, they, uh, the, the, Jesus goes to his hometown and they say, you know, who does this guy think he is? You know, we know, we know who he is. We know his family. And then when he, he performs all these miracles and Herod hears about it in the second story, he says, you know, the question is, who is this guy? And Herod has his own opinions about that. So, so both of these center on the idea of who Jesus is. And of course, in both of them, miracles play a prominent role. And in both of them, we have manifestations of unbelief in spite of the miracles that are done. So I think they're, they go enough together that, that it's good for us to think of them together here this morning. So let's consider, first of all, Jesus' interaction here with his, his hometown, which we know to be the town of Nazareth. So this is not the town where Jesus was born. You know the story well from all the Christmas programs you've been to, right? Um, he's born down in Bethlehem, but he is from Nazareth. And so he goes back to this little village. It's kind of a small fishing village. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bigger town, but it's, it's not grand like Jerusalem or anything like that. It's a fishing village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, place where he grew up, uh, the son of a blue-collar worker in the town, a carpenter, a, a smith of some sort, making different things for people. And uh, so Jesus goes back to this town, and he enters into the synagogue, and because he's a rabbi, he... Uh, he is able to read and to preach the scripture there, and he does. And if you read the other gospels, they tell us even a little bit more about what he did that day. Um, he opened the Bible, he opened the, sc- the scroll. You know, he had the scrolls open, and uh, wasn't quite so easy for for them, was it? You know, with Bibles in their laps, like we have. That's why I thank God for the privilege that we have. They, they, scripture was very, very important for people who didn't have it and uh, maybe in some cases who couldn't read. So the reading of the Scripture was done. And that day, the Scripture reading, or at least one of the Scripture readings, came from Isaiah, the book we read earlier, but from Isaiah chapter 60. And it, of course, is a messianic passage because in one sense, all of the Bible is messianic, but in a really heightened way. It talks specifically about the miracles of Jesus Christ And Jesus began his homily this way. He said, after the scroll was put away, he sat down and began to teach, and here's how he started. He said, today, that scripture is being fulfilled right in front of you. Now, wouldn't it be amazing to sit there and listen to Jesus preach? I mean, of all people, any preacher anywhere would run to sit down to listen to the Son of God himself open up the scriptures and reveal to us the things that, that pointed to himself from the Old Testament. And uh, so they had the privilege that day of hearing the, the eternal Son of God sitting in their church, teaching them uh, his own inspired words. And the Bible says that as he went on preaching and teaching to them, they were astounded, they were amazed And in verse 54 here in the text, we see that they were amazed at two things in particular. What two things really moved these people? Well, on the one hand, it was his wisdom, his incredible understanding 
of the Scriptures. I mean, you know, I've found it surprising and encouraging through the years that the more I study and the more I read and the more I preach, the more I begin to find connections in the Bible that I never saw before, and I'm so excited about it, and I just see this is, this is the wisdom of God. How come I never saw it before? Can you imagine now here's the Son of God making connections in this vast word that is the, is the inscripturation of what he is the embodiment of. And so he begins to preach to them, and they are astounded at the Scripture. I'm sure that day it came to life for them. It, came, it, it became clear to them in a way that they never saw before. The Bible was amazing. But then on the other hand, they were also astounded, according to verse 54, not only by His wisdom, but by His what? By His works, by His miracles. They had seen, they had heard that He had healed the blind and made the deaf to hear again. And He had come to people who were known to be lame all their life. People had known, watched them sit in the same place begging, begging for alms. And now the, guy, the people are, are uh, rejoicing and, and walking. And it, so he's healing the blind. He's opening the ears of the deaf. He's making the lame to jump about. And it's, it's, it's astounding, these people. All of this, in fact, was just what Isaiah predicted would happen when God's kingdom dawns, that end time kingdom comes, you'll have miraculous signs. It'll come with wonders. And they were astounded. But there was uh, a stumbling block for those people of old, and that was the origin of Jesus. And the big problem for them is they kept saying, but we know this guy. This, we know his family. He grew up right here in our town. Have you ever gone back to the place where you were born or where you grew up as a kid and find sometimes that maybe some of the older people anyway or some of the people that knew you when you were a uh, a little terror. They just have a hard time sort of accepting you for a mature adult that you are now. Sometimes maybe you felt a little bit of that. I've, I don't know if that's what's going on here. These people are, they're looking around. Of course, they should have known, watching Jesus grow up, that this is a young man unlike any other young man that they've ever seen in their life. Um, they, they were saying, we know this man. We know his family. Jesus says, you know, that's where a prophet doesn't have any honor in his, in his own hometown. They said, they said, in other words, they said, this guy, we know him. He's nothing special. He's the son of the carpenter, the town carpenter. We know his brothers and his sisters. And yet he kept telling them things like, the son of man came down from heaven. I am the bread that came down from heaven, he said. What do you mean came down from heaven? We, we saw him. We know when he was born. We know his family. They refuse to believe in spite of, and here's the key, they refuse to believe in spite of 
the wisdom with which he spoke and the wonders that he performed. And they said to themselves, where did these things come from? Where did he learn all this stuff? Where did he get this? They would not accept the obvious answer. It came from God because he came from God. And sin has a way, it really does, of blinding us to the truth. Even in this case, what should have been obvious to them. In other words, these people didn't just reject people for lack of evidence. They rejected him in spite of the overwhelming evidence. And so verse 58 um, says that their unbelief, because of their unbelief, Jesus did not do many miracles in his own hometown. And in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, he enlarges on this a little bit, and he says that they wanted a display of miracles in their town. They didn't want him to just heal other people's sick. They wanted him to heal their sick. They didn't want him to just open the eyes of people in faraway places. They wanted to see him do something right here at home. They wanted him to, to take care of them. Hey, what about us? Hey, we, 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 you know, we watched you grow up. We took care of you. You're going around ministering to everybody else. What about us? We need some of that. Give, them, give us what you gave to other people. We deserve it as least as much as the next town over, right? Um, this is their mindset. But Jesus hadn't come to immediately deliver the people from the things that they wanted to be immediately delivered from, the tyranny of Rome or injustice that they faced or all of the diseases that they had or from to deliver all of their dead back to life. He, he, he came to take care of those things, but He came to take care in the first place of the deeper problem. Say, what's deeper than that? What's deeper than injustice? What's, deeper, what's a deeper problem than sickness? And, and what can be worse than death? And there is an answer, right? And we know it as believers. What is the answer? The thing that causes all of that. Sin. Sin is the root of all the problems that these people ever faced in their lives. And He came to take away sin. He came to take care of the deeper problem, to give a deeper healing, to remove that alienation that they had from God. Mark chapter 4, the record is that Jesus had spent a long day um, healing people in another place, and in a nearby town. And at the end of the day, um, well, sorry, the next day, all the people came back to him, um, of course, because there were still more sick people. There were still more people to, that were hurting. There were still more people that had problems. And they, so the next day they came to him. And remember what Jesus did? Um, Jesus said, no, I need to go into the next town and to preach. To proclaim. He said, that's the reason I've come. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus didn't come to heal people. No, of course He came to heal. 
That was part of God's purpose, but it wasn't the ultimate purpose, right? Are we, we're all on the same page on this? Jesus' ultimate purpose was to take care of the very root of all of the problems that these people would ever face. If you just take care of the, the symptom, but you don't take care of the root, you have not helped people. Very root from all of the wickedness and the ungodliness and the brokenness and the pain and the hurt and the injustice and the tyranny of the world. If men's hearts were transformed by the gospel, then society would be transformed and ultimately all creation would be transformed. He came to deal with the very root of it. What they needed was not merely relief from their problems, but the message that would point them to the one who would take away the root of their problems, which is sin and alienation from God in whom is life itself. The problem was they're alienated from God. And of course, when you're alienated from God, there is misery and sin. Amen? You've, some of you all experienced that. You've walked away from God for a while, and you know there's just nothing there but misery, pain, sickness, and death. And I tell you, you know, your biggest need and my biggest need is not immediately to be relieved of all of our external problems. Our problems are rather used by God to drive us to a sense of need and to ultimately point us to the one who cuts away the very root of that, those problems, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you today, that's what the Lord wants to do in your life. More than wanting to heal you in your body, more than wanting to give money into your checkbook, more than wanting to write some injustice that's been done to you. What God wants to do is take care of the sin problem. The sin problem that lies at the root of all of your problems and, and the sin problem in the lives of other people that, that cause societal problems and problems all around the world. Christ confronts us about our deeper need, our greatest need, the healing of our sin-sick souls. And this is part of the problem as we've looked at the last couple of weeks on Sunday afternoons with the prosperity gospel that God's will is always for everybody to be healthy and wealthy all the days of their lives. No, that's not the case. I remember, in fact, the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata who was paralyzed from the neck down by a tragic accident in her youth and for a while was very angry with God. She gave testimony of how she went to a healing meeting one time, one of these word of faith healers, and all of the really sick people, she said, were escorted into a little row in the back. And, and then after the service, in fact, before the end, they started ushering the people out so that they could get in the elevator and get out before the rest of the people who came to the meeting were dismissed and were in, these people were in danger of being trampled. And she wrote about the heartbreak that she had. Why didn't God heal me in my body? But looking back on it, she said, this is what the Lord was about. The Lord was intent to do a deeper healing. That is the healing of my heart. The healing of my soul. The dealing with me about my sin and my relationship with Christ. 
That's what I needed more than I needed to be healed in my body. In fact, she said, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would not choose to be healed in my body so that I may have healing in my soul. That's what we need more than what we realize. These people were looking for some immediate uh, miraculous signs and wonders and relief from their suffering right there in front of them and ignoring and turning their back on the message that would set them free indeed. Brothers and sisters, miracles are not our own little private testimony. They were given to confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel, the good news, is that Christ has come to set you free from the very thing that is at the heart of all your troubles, but it's going to require that you realize where the problem lies. It's not in your body. It's not in your circumstances. It's in your very heart. And those who will repent of their way and their understanding and put their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ will find a deeper healing indeed. You could walk out of here today healed to the greatest extent that you could ever imagine in your very soul. That's what Jesus came to do. People oftentimes assume that seeing a miracle would change their mind about God. You know, we've all met people who have said, well, if God would just show me some kind of sign that He really is there or that this Bible really is true, then I'd I'd change my mind about God. And that is actually not the case. Not Not the case according to the Scripture. God ordained that His power should come primarily through His Word and a willingness to hear. Remember Jesus, the account of that He told about what happened to a, a rich man who had lived and a, and a poor man named Lazarus. And the rich man ended up in hell and He said, please send someone from beyond the grave to go and testify to my brothers that they would not end up in a place like this. And the Word of God came back to Him that, if they, that they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Scripture And if they will not hear those, they would not believe even if one came back from the dead. We must not say to ourselves, well, I would change my mind. I would would judge the evidence rightly. I'm impartial enough that if God just gave me enough evidence, if He just really cleared it up instead of being so obscure, then I would make the intelligent choice and make the right decision. No, we're fools indeed. We're all of us fools apart from the grace of God with eyes blinded to what's obvious and right in front of us, right? How else can people look at the heavens and not give glory to God who made them all? How else can someone look at the intricacies of the human body and not believe that there is a designer behind it all? We are blind. It's just human nature. We're born hardened and blind and And until we come to a point at which our eyes are really open and our ears are really willing to hear, then no no amount of evidence, no uh, amount of miraculous signs are going to change 
our minds. We're able to rationalize away almost anything that we don't want to accept. It's the gospel, in fact, that comes and challenges our self-confirming biases because the gospel comes and says, no, you are not wise. You have to submit your own wisdom to my word. You are not good. You have to recognize your own robbing of my glory by the way that you've lived and turn from your sin to be saved. The gospel, the gospel is, is a miraculous thing when it happens in the hearts of people. And, and you better be thankful for that because that's the only hope for people who are willfully blinded to evidence right in front of them. I tell you today, I, I admonish you to humble yourself before the Almighty God, to hear His Word and to receive it with simple faith. Receive it with simple faith. I will tell you, all of your intellectual problems with the Scripture will, will be as nothing when your heart is transformed by the gracious Savior and by the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. You then, and the reason is then you, then you finally are in a place where you can start to see. I can see. And it's no wonder that this message is foolishness to those who are wise in the world. They know. How, I'm, I, want to, I, want to, I want him to prove it first and then I'll decide to believe in him. He says, no, you believe. You accept what I say. The evidence is there. It's not for lack of evidence. Humble yourself before the Almighty God and you may be saved. And that's good news. Because the people of Nazareth refused to believe, Jesus did no more signs for them. We want signs first and then we'll have faith. God says, no, faith first then signs. So do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Him no matter what? Your faith in Him. He's the very Son of God. He's worthy of your trust. And you know, before we leave the, the hometown of Nazareth, I think there's one more thing maybe that's going on here, is that perhaps there's a sense of, of kind of entitlement among the people of Nazareth. You know, if, if other cities got to see Jesus' miracles, then we deserve it more so. We're His hometown. And Jesus' answer to these people, this is from the Gospel of Luke, it kind of sheds light here, is that He reminds them that during the days of the prophet Elijah, remember Elijah in the Old Testament? And there was a great famine, and He said there were many widows in Israel... But God sent Elijah away from Israel over to Phoenicia on the coast. Un, ungodly heathen people. He sent Elijah over there to take care of a widow woman. In other words, what's more important to God is not the pedigree of these people, but whether their hearts are open toward the Lord. And these, these were a people who were hardened toward God, who were refusing to believe, and, and he reminds them also, hey, in the time of Elisha the prophet, there were many lepers in Israel, but God only healed Naaman 
the Syrian, another outsider. Insiders often have a sense of entitlement. That of course God will be merciful to me. Of course God will be gracious to me. The gospel strips away that sense. And it confronts us with the fact that all of us are sinners and no one deserves grace. And when you come to that point, finally, then you're ready to be saved. That's why salvation is by faith. Because faith is is passive in a sense. It, it, It doesn't do, it just trusts. It receives. Salvation comes to you and I who do nothing for it, who deserve nothing from God, but when we are finally ready to cast ourselves on Christ alone, then we are ready to be saved. And then you have the account of the the dealings with Herod here, right? Chapter 14. And with Herod, he calls him Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas, so not to be confused with Herod Great. Um, the Herod that was in charge when Jesus was born. This Herod uh, is the one who we've already read has imprisoned John the Baptist. And in fact, he'll be the same Herod who will be the one to before whom Jesus will stand trial before very well. That's this guy. And the reports come to Herod that Jesus from Nazareth, has been doing these incredible miracles, these wonders, these signs. And there is a lot of discussion that goes on in Herod's court when, you know, the court gossip and everybody, the the whole uh, group is abuzz with uh, the news of all of these healings and even even some say um, raising from the dead of some people. And you can just hear people talking, who is this wonder worker? Some people say, it's Elijah, come again. Others say, you know, it's, it's, it's one or the other of the prophets. And, and, and Herod, he has his own ideas about who this miracle worker is. He says, it's got to be John the Baptist. Partly because maybe Herod, Herod has a troubled conscience and he's superstitious about all that's been going on because he was the one who was responsible for John the Baptist's death. And so you actually have sort of the background for this uh, in verses 3 and following. Verses 1 and 2 tell uh, what we need to think about in terms of Jesus. And then the background is this. So with John the Baptist and Herod, as you may know, there was some political and and moral intrigue. Uh, John the Baptist had confronted Herod. Herod was supposedly a Jew. Uh, part part Jew, but he was supposedly, you know, followed the, the law and so forth. Uh, far from it, really. But Herod, at some point, fell in love, so to speak, with his, uh, his brother's wife. And so Herod divorced his wife. The wife divorced her husband so that they could come and now be together. And, of course... In so many ways, this was a violation of God's law. And John the Baptist confronted um, Herod, which is a great example to us of a man who speaks truth to those who are in power. That's what um, we need 
um, someone who's not afraid to speak the Word of God and, and apply the Word of God even in situations where it could get him in a lot of trouble. And of course it did. The Bible tells us not to have any association with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to what? You know what it says? Rather, you should expose them or reprove them. And that's exactly what, what John did. And so Herod had him arrested. And now, sort of the relationship between Herod and John and Jesus is what you might call complicated. Right? I don't know if you remember this back when Facebook was new. Maybe they still have it. I don't know. You, could, you would put on there if you were in a relationship with someone and you could be in a relationship or not in a relationship, or then they had a, like a third choice that said, it's complicated. You remember that? <laughs> so that's sort of like what, what's going on here. It's a, very, it's a very complicated relationship as you look at the full picture from all of the Gospels. Um, on the one hand, Herod was very intrigued by John and by Jesus, very intrigued by both the message that John was preaching and, and, and by the miracles of, of Jesus. Um, in fact, Mark says that he feared John. But with, you know, he kind of had this sort of at least superstitious kind of reverence for John as a, some kind of holy man. He feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And it says also that he was greatly perplexed at John's confrontation of him and John's message of repentance, but yet the Bible says that he heard him gladly, right? So it's like a love-hate relationship with John. He can't decide whether he should listen to him because he's some sort of holy man and, and you know, it's, he might bring woe upon himself if he doesn't, but on the other hand, he doesn't like the message, and on the other hand, he's, he's very intrigued by it, and he, he, wa- he, you know, he wants to hear more, and so you kind of have this sort of back and forth going on. His wife, however, her opinion about John the Baptist is very clear. She not for him. <laughs> She's bitter at him, and probably because of the, you know, the proclamations that John has made, the condemnations about his own, her relationship with her, um, her new husband now, and so for her sake, Herod, the Bible says, would have, would have put John the Baptist to death, but he hadn't up to this point because he also was a person who was very concerned about the, the crowds and trying to keep peace and, and keep power and make everybody happy and, 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 and go along. And he was afraid because the crowds thought that John was a prophet. So up to this point, that's where John is. He's sitting in jail sitting in prison. Herod doesn't quite know what to do. But of course, the text tells us the background that, 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 that a day came when Herod had a big birthday party thrown for himself. And uh, among the day's entertainment, as it were, was uh, Herodias's daughter, traditionally called Salome. And she danced for Herod and for his friends. And you know, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but you can just imagine the wine is flowing and the king and his friends are there at a prince's party and you can imagine the, the lewdness perhaps of what may have happened. And In any case, 
Whatever happened, it moved Herod to say to her, I will give you anything that you want in the whole kingdom. You know? And so she has, in counsel with her mother now, who is embittered against John, she has one request only. I want the head of John the Baptist delivered to me. And verse 9, here's the key here. Take a look at it again. Verse 9 in the text, chapter 14. It says that the king was sorry. He wasn't happy about this. He wasn't like, yeah, I finally get to get rid of him. He, he, there was an element, that's what I say, is it got a complicated relationship with John and with Jesus and with the whole gospel. But, so he was sorry, but yet because of his oaths, um, and particularly because he made these oaths in front of all his buddies, his friends, his guests, he commanded that it be carried out. And you can't help but think here that there's, that Matthew sees in that a bit of foreshadowing. Here's a man who reacts this way in this situation. He's going to react this way again at the trial of the Lord Jesus, right? Remember that Jesus originally went on trial before Pilate, who's the Roman. So there's a Roman governor, and then there's this sort of quasi-Jewish sort of kingship going on. And uh, under the rule of Rome. So it starts with Rome. He goes to Pilate, and Pilate, you know, hears him for a little bit. And then Pilate finds out that Herod's in town, the king, and that Jesus is from Galilee, one of Herod's districts. And so he says, well, you, go, you go see Herod. So Jesus, uh, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. And uh, Luke says that Herod, when Jesus came before Herod, that he was, quote, very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So he's excited about miracles. The same thing that he was wondering uh, when he heard about Jesus before, whether he was John, now he, he has an opportunity to see this man this in the flesh and, and see these wonders being performed. So he's very intrigued by miracles. And here's the key. Here's a guy who's intrigued, who's obsessed by the miracles and the testimony of all that's being done by this, this Jesus. But when Jesus would not perform on demand for Herod, and facing the pressure of the crowd, Herod beat him and sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate said, tellingly, he said, I find what? No fault in this man. And then he says in one of the gospel accounts, and neither did Herod. We, we, neither one of us have found any fault in this man, and yet they conspired together to put him to death because of the pressure of the community around them. Because of pressure to conform, because of not, not because there wasn't evidence. They saw the evidence. There's nothing wrong with this man. In fact, if anything, they wonder if he's some sort of holy man. But they're willing to put him to death, not on the basis of the evidence, but rather for their own selfish motives. Herod is both intrigued by Jesus and yet influenced by Jesus' enemies. And I tell you today, listen to me, that's one of the ways unbelief manifests itself. There are people who are intrigued by Christianity and yet ultimately they turn away from the truth. Not on the basis of evidence, but because really they're influenced by those around them. They live in a society in which to believe in Jesus seems very, 
I don't know. Maybe in some cases backwards. At least to be radically committed to Jesus seems a little bit foolish. To believe all of the claims of the Bible seem just uh, not very intelligent. And, and that's the culture in which they live. It's a whole culture that has come so far, that has suppressed the truth so much that, that, that the whole culture is, um, and, and the whole people around them are, are, are just set in sin, and they're, but they're influenced by that, by the pressure of the crowds of unbelievers, by the skepticism of those around them. These are people who are glad to listen like Herod was, but in the end, they walk away. And this is the one of the most tragic kind of persons to ever meet. Someone who is so close, and yet in the end is so far away from real faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. God forbid that that would be the case for us. Where are you in your heart? What's your stance toward Jesus Christ? One of faith or one of doubt? The very last word in chapter 13 is the word unbelief, isn't it? Unbelief. This is not used of true disciples. Now, I tell you, true disciples will occasionally be characterized by the Greek word is oligopistis little faith, but they're not characterized by apistis, no faith. Sometimes their faith struggles and they, they, they doubt and they say, Lord, where are you? They're tempted to grow bitter, but in the end, they have faith. And that's who I hope I'm preaching to this morning for the most part. You people who say that at the end of the day, right, at the end of the day, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I do. Trust just resting in the Word of God. There's something really sweet about that. And your, your faith is going to be tested at times. But God's people are those who, who may say at times, Lord, help my unbelief. But in the end, they say, I believe. I believe. So help me. Help me to keep seeing. Help me to keep hearing. And if any of you here are today, have yet to come, you've yet to come to express a real, in public, a real commitment to Jesus, I hope you'll do that today. I hope you'll go to somebody and say, listen, today is the day that I decided to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. Today's the day that I finally realized that I don't have to have all the answers, but I have to have Christ. And you walk out of here a changed person. Heavenly Father, please work this message into the hearts of your people. I pray that they would see Christ for who He is. I pray that any here who may be lost and apart from Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation for them. This would be the beginning of true saving faith. Open their eyes, Lord, so that they may see, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.